From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. It's March, which means it's Women's History Month. This month, we'll speak with women about their activism and resistance to fight for their rights and those around them. Today, we're talking about the very sexy idea of constitutional interpretation. Okay, stay with me. The Constitution, like any text, is open to interpretation. You might read it one way, and I might read it another. Where this gets hairy is when different judges or justices have vastly different methods of interpretation, typically based in their own bias, education, and lived experience. Where it gets even hairier is when women's rights are on the line because of one certain theory of constitutional interpretation, one where women weren't even considered people in the eyes of the law. It's called originalism. Originalism dictates that present-day readings of the Constitution should be dependent on the documents in, quotes, original public meaning, which means that we have to look back to the time of the Constitution's writing and ratification to interpret its meaning. The problem is that only certain people at that time had civil rights at all. White land-owning men. While initially this was a fringe theory, Originalism has now grown to become a dominant legal framework, one followed by five of the nine justices on the Supreme Court. Legal scholars are alarmed at its increased use because the stakes are so high. In decisions we are seeing across the country, originalism is being used to threaten the safety of women and bodily autonomy at large. As our guest today, Madiba Denny, wrote, American law has historically not been good to women, and whatever progress there once was is now vulnerable to regression. Madiba Denny is the formal counsel at the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. She's also a writer and an attorney. She recently explored the consequences of using the Constitution in this way in an article for The Atlantic titled, Originalism is Going to Get Women Killed. She joins us today to discuss... Madiba, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with a really basic first question, which is, what is originalism? (laughs) That's a very important grounding question. (laughs) So originalism, as you stated, is a legal theory. Uh, I think it's appropriate to call it an ideology, really, that says that the meaning of the Constitution is fixed in time that the way the Constitution must be interpreted today is however it would have been interpreted or been understood, uh, they call this the original public meaning, at the time of ratification. So whatever rules that we live by in 2023 have to be the same rules that would have been in place in like the 1800s. Yikes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's adherents, the people who believe in originalism, They market it as a fair and free way to interpret the Constitution, free from favor or prejudice, a conclusion that I find hard to draw when, as I mentioned in the introduction, only white landowning men were actually considered people in the eyes of the law at the time of the Constitution's writing. So do originalists address this flaw in their argument? Do they care? I think that 
if I'm trying to give them their sort of best faith argument, like putting it in the best light for some of the huge deficits you pointed out in terms of who actually counted as a person at that time, I think they would try to argue, well, the Constitution has been amended and ratified, so, uh, and like it has been, you know, democratically approved of, so it's still okay. It still has that sort of democratic legitimacy. I don't necessarily think that's true at all. And I don't think that it's legitimate or reasonable or uh, fair just to sort of assume that. And I think that's become especially clear in some of the recent cases, both at the Supreme Court level, but also at the lower court levels as federal trial and appellate courts, which are bound to follow the Supreme Court's rulings, are struggling with this sort of originalist nonsense that the highest court puts down and crafting their rulings in a way that just pulls us further and further back in time in a time that most of us would have been much worse off. Yeah, I mean, it really mimics this kind of ideology that I feel like exists in a lot of other spaces beyond law in our country of like, what is neutrality? And that neutrality, I think, is largely seen in America as whatever white people or white men think. And that anything that diverges from that is uh, showing bias. But it's really interesting because, you know, originalism as a ideology isn't exactly free from bias because, like you said, it was written at a time where so many people weren't really even considered people in the law. Just really interesting to me that it actually mimics, in a lot of ways, what I think we see in other kind of areas of American life or facets of American life beyond law. I think that's a spot on analysis. This issue, we're seeing it so clearly in law, but it's not limited to law uh, in that you can look at, you can look at uh, anything. You can look at pop culture. When they casted John Boyega in Star Wars and people were like, oh, is this a normal Star Wars or is it woke? And by woke, I mean, are there black people? <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, as a, as a black person, uh, the presence of black people is normal. Like the baseline does not have to be exclusively white men. And that's the same sort of way we're seeing the, the law understood and that the baseline has to be uh, like rich white men because uh, wealthy uh, land owning uh, white men would have been the people with basically exclusive political power for uh, much of the country's history. And so if we're interpreting things in that way, that's a built-in bias. It's not free from bias. It's just already baked into it. So your recent article in The Atlantic highlights how originalism operates in practice. You focus on a recent gun control case called United States versus Rahimi. What was the problem in front of the court in this case? So the court in U.S. versus Rahimi uh, was considering a regulation that makes it unlawful for a person to possess a gun if they were subject to an order of protection against like an intimate partner or a child. Uh, in order for this to happen, the law specifies that there would have had to be a credible threat to this person. Uh, a court would have had to provide fair notice and opportunity uh, for the person with the order against them to be heard and uh, still hear the evidence. And they would have ruled that that there's now an order of protection to protect somebody who they were like in a relationship with, basically perceiving them as a threat. And there was a federal statute that said, well, if you have one of these types of orders of protections uh, where 
the the law has found that you're a direct threat to uh, this person in your life, probably this woman in your life, if you look at the statistics, then you aren't allowed to have a gun anymore. And um, the United States Fifth Circuit uh, Court had heard basically the exact same case multiple times before. And every time they did, they saw that it was constitutional. But that changed a couple weeks ago. And the intervening factor was the United States Supreme Court uh, upholding originalism above all else uh, in a case called uh, Bruin. In Bruin, the court handed down a new standard. And that standard was a gun regulation is only constitutional if it would like fit within the America's traditions and history of gun regulation. But if you look more closely at the ruling, you'll see that even that is an inaccurate descriptor uh, because uh, Clarence Thomas, who wrote the opinion, says later, well, not all history is created equal. So he sort of brushes off the inconvenient history and focuses on the particular window that gives him the result he would want. Not biased. That's not (laughs) Not biased. biased. Mm -mm. Yeah, you know, just history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like anyone can sort of pick and choose their favorite components of history. And that's precisely what originalists do. Uh, and so they picked the favorite part and said it has to be consistent with or like it has to be a historical analog uh, to this type of rule uh, or else it's unconstitutional. So then uh, Rahimi, who had actually uh, made this same sort of like case before and lost, uh, when Bruin happened, he said, well, hang on. And so he appealed his ruling and said, you know, you all have to reconsider this case now in light of the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin. And so the Fifth Circuit did that and said, you know, you're right. We, we looked at it now. We considered Bruin and there's no historical analog here. And the United States government uh, tried to put forth various possible historical analogs, all of which were rejected by the Fifth Circuit. And at the end of the day, it's really because the United States doesn't have a history of protecting women from gun violence. Uh, In fact, it used to be like men used to have a legal right to beat their wives under law for way later than you would expect. (laughs) Um, And so there is no historical grounding there to protect women. This is going to be true in lots of different areas for lots of different historically marginalized people. That's a direct result of the way they're choosing to frame this issue. And they're acting like it's, it's neutral when it is plainly not. Mm-hmm. You actually say that in your piece in such a uh, compelling way. You write, instead of counseling, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Originalism instructs, if it's still broken, you still can't fix it, which a prescription for permanent crisis in America, unsolvable in the present. So we can actually never fix the issues that we used to have or still have because they've always been issues. So therefore they will always be issues. Right. That should be horrifying to horrifying (laughs) to everyone. Yeah, I think it should be horrifying to everyone. It is obviously horrifying to uh, people who have historically been vulnerable and been victimized in the past, like your communities of color, your uh, women uh, of all races, your people of different sexual orientation, so on and so forth. And an interesting group that we haven't really seen yet um, respond much to the originalist threat, I think, is lawmakers. 
Because I, for one, if I were a legislator, I would be very concerned. If I would say, oh, I can't pass any of these laws when I'm trying to take care of my constituents who are in danger because you're saying that this law didn't exist before. Well, how am I as a lawmaker supposed to make laws to address today's problems if I can only ground uh, my laws in whatever was happening 200 years ago? If I was a lawmaker, that would make me mad. I think it would make some lawmakers mad. <laughs> I think some lawmakers might be might be happy. But you're right, even from a perspective of taking away some of their legislative power, right? Like we talk about checks and balances and branches of government holding each other accountable and definitely puts a damper on the legislative power of our elected officials. It could be interesting to see them have this reaction, but I, I guess I wonder... I don't feel so hopeful about that, just given the fact that it doesn't seem like this gets much airtime, which is why I'm so glad that you wrote about it. Yeah, I'm working on a book on exactly this issue because I think that it doesn't get enough uh, airtime. People don't realize enough the impact that originalism has on their lives. And I think that's by design. The courts can obscure things, obscure harms and sort of like legalese and try rationalize it away saying, oh, well, you know, based on the original interpretation of the Second Amendment, it is therefore unlawful to deprive people of their fundamental right to a gun, no matter uh, if they, I don't know, had committed acts of violence against their significant other. And regardless of if the statistics show that mere possession of a gun in a domestic uh violence situation dramatically increases the likelihood of fatality. And even if not fatality as well, it still dramatically increases the risk of being threatened with a gun. And so you can sort of craft this legal argument to say none of that matters because actually uh, we should be looking at uh, the way the Second Amendment was understood then. And so I want to empower people to realize, don't fall for that nonsense. Uh, <laughs> like, there's no reason why that has to be true. This is a decision that the Federalist Society made in the 80s, and uh, we don't have to stick with that. So I want to carry on where you're going with that. So when originalism was actually first developed in 1971, it was initially considered fringe. How did we come to have originalism as a constitutional ideology that is so popular today? Sure. Well, I think that originalists had a very good long game. I think they were very strategic about putting the right people, uh, using right very loosely here, uh, the the right people in all the right places, uh, like stacking the Justice Department under President Reagan with all sorts of originalists and like using it as really sort of a like training ground and like bolstering relationships with the Federalist Society and getting this idea out there more and more and sort of laundering it in academic circles and in law reviews to make it seem like a more legitimate thing. Whereas if you do actually dig just a little bit deeper, if you look like just past the surface, it all sort of unravels as intellectually and morally unjustifiable. We saw originalism come up in this case and, you know, I think you framed it so profoundly that originalism is going to get women killed. Um, That's in the domestic violence setting, the gun case that we just spoke about. Also notable to mention that uh, having a DV restraining order or charge against you is also a very, very good predictor of perpetrators of mass shootings. I want to talk about how originalism has 
consistently shown up in recent decisions. Let's talk about Dobbs. The goal seems clearly to not be just about limiting protections under the law, but also rolling back protections that we've already won. Well, I I think that goes along really sort of neatly with what you were saying about it, uh, it being a myth that it's neutral and unbiased, uh, because we see that is quite quite apparently a tool uh, used to pull back people's rights, used to roll them back and go back into the situation where it would have been uh, when these laws were originally ratified, in theory. I say in theory because there's a lot of bad history in the Dobbs opinion and in Bruin. In fact, the premier American historical associations in the country put out a statement after the Dobbs ruling being like, wow, <laughs> being like you are you are claiming to rely on history. Uh, you're invoking history repeatedly. And yet the history in here is terrible. Uh, and it's like not actually an accurate reflection. Uh, so I think there are a couple issues here. There's it's really hard for the amateur historians on the court to actually figure out what really was the original public meaning uh, hundreds of years ago, um, to the extent that there even was an original public meaning, because things mean different things to different people. Even like the lawmakers might have different reasons or compromises or concessions why they're doing something and are hoping that it doesn't actually go one way. So I think it's a it's very much up in the air whether or not there is even any such thing as an original public meaning. And then to make that worse, to the extent there is an original public meaning, usually it's going to be bad uh, because things have been bad for women, bad for women of color, uh, bad for uh, people of color more broadly, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think you can extra see where originalism really falls apart in that overwhelmingly the sort of prominent originalists you see on the court they never really apply the same sort of originalism to the Reconstruction Amendments, like your post-Civil War 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that dramatically expanded uh, freedoms and citizenship for the country. Like suddenly, originalism no longer matters there when it comes to doing right by people, when it comes to building a more equal and inclusive and progressive multiracial democratic society. Suddenly, originalism no longer is relevant. Uh, they find a way to explain it away. And I think you see some of that in Dobbs as well. Like people are trying to point to examples uh, uh, from like the Reconstruction era, uh, how a lot of uh, a lot of it has to do with you know like bodily autonomy, uh, in that you know enslaved women were forced to get pregnant and give birth uh, because like their reproductive system was also the capitalist reproductive system uh, in order to produce more slaves. And so being free from that, uh, one can argue, is right there in the Constitution as part of uh, giving uh, these formerly enslaved Black women their bodies back. So I think that that is one of many arguments that one can make uh, grounded in history that the court just wants nothing to do with uh, because it is picking and choosing its favorite parts in order to deprive people of their rights. What do you make of that picking and choosing, though, right? I mean, in a 2016 University of Pennsylvania Law Review article, now Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote, adherence to originalism arguably requires, for example, the dismantling of the administrative state, the invalidation of paper money, and the reversal of Brown v. Board of Education. 
So she's really literally referencing undoing school integration. Where does it stop? Because it would be so horrible if it didn't stop there. Like on the scale of harm, right? Are they just trying to like keep it in check so as to not like lose all uh, public opinion? I think you're definitely onto something there. Like, uh, I think it's important to remember that the courts don't have any army. They don't have the power of the purse. Uh, Basically, all they have is their sense of public legitimacy, uh, being perceived as credible. And so I think the court does sometimes try to, or at least used to, try to think about how far can I push and still be listened to uh, and still like be taken seriously. You had just mentioned that uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, mentioned originalism potentially being you know, in conflict with Brown v. Board. And part of me is glad that she admitted that uh, because because <laughs> a lot of originalists do not. Uh, there are some originalists as well who uh, like try to contort history to say that actually Brown v. Board is an originalist decision. It's very obviously not, though. And I think that that should have been the nail in the coffin right there. Like if your if your theory of legal interpretation can't account for what is arguably the best decision the Supreme Court has ever made <laughs> and one of the like most significant decisions, surely, that uh, helped like revolutionize American democracy. If you can't account for that, then your theory of interpretation is illegitimate. I'll say that uh, a lot of the sort of beginnings, like of the underpinnings of originalism, were tied to this sort of backlash to Brown v. Board, thinking we need a smart sounding way to deal with this. <laughs> uh, we need to, yeah, to like have our sort of reactionary backlash, but dress it up a little bit, put a suit and tie on it, give it a law degree and make it seem presentable. So what do we do about this? Is there an antidote or corresponding tactic? Um, I know that Justice Brennan in 1985 proposed a doctrine of, in quotes, living constitutionalism in which judges insist that the meaning of the document can evolve in response to changing societal perceptions and demands. I always thought this was a judge's job, like on its face, because otherwise it seems pretty simple. How popular is this understanding? I think that Living constitutionalism became like less in vogue when you had the ascendance of originalism. But I think people are somewhat starting to come back to it now, just like seeing the horrors that originalism hath wrought. Um, but you also see people trying to rework originalism and see if there's a more progressive originalism. I don't think that we need to do that. Um, I think that's still sort of playing on these bad faith terms. Uh, so I would I would turn back to Justice Brennan's Thurgood Marshall's like living constitutionalism, and I would just offer a a slight revision or a slight uh, making more specific. I propose a framework that I've called um, inclusive constitutionalism. I think that we should not be connecting our uh, constitutional interpretation to a set specific time point as originalism claims, I suggest that we instead look at the principles and the goals of the Constitution. Uh, We can like use the Reconstruction Era amendments and what they were trying to accomplish as a frame and like use that as a lens and say, okay, whenever we're interpreting the Constitution, we should be thinking about it as a document that 
uh, was fundamentally changed uh, after the Civil War to embrace and facilitate a inclusive multiracial democracy. And so all of our all of our constitutional questions should be interpreted with that in mind of like, does this does this actually make a multiracial inclusive democracy function or not? Like, does this treat all of our citizens as full citizens or not. If we think that we the people really does mean we the people, um, that we count as those people, and that we get to have a say in the rules that govern our society, then I think what we need then is a more inclusive constitutionalism. And so I want to sort of um, develop that idea and promote that idea and get people to think about the law differently, saying, you know, we've been told that originalism is the one true way to interpret the Constitution. It's not. And we can be interpreting it in this better way that helps our democracy instead of undermining it. Do you think that there's enough text in the Constitution as it exists today with its current amendments so as to not require us to call for a constitutional conference, uh, maybe ratify the ERA? the Equal Rights Amendment. I still do think that we should reform the Constitution. I think there are some like very clear opportunities for change. Like you mentioned, the Equal Rights Amendment. It is kind of ridiculous that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that uh, we don't have an Equal Rights Amendment. And, okay, just a little background for people. What is the Equal Rights Amendment? Yeah, so the Equal Rights Amendment is an amendment that's been proposed that would ensure that people's rights are not abridged on the basis of sex. And this has been put forth and ratified in a bunch of states, but has not been actually uh, recognized across the country as part of the Constitution. There are arguments that it should be, uh, that it has that it has technically uh, checked all the boxes that an amendment must check. And so uh, what it's missing then is that sort of popular legitimacy, I think, so there are definitely people who are doing really interesting work on building that popular legitimacy for the Equal Rights Amendment. And that like lots of other countries have such an amendment and we don't. I feel like that should we should consider that a problem. There's an Equal Rights Amendment uh, initiative at Columbia Law School that uh, is focusing on like some of some of those issues as well. Uh, yeah, it would definitely be worth looking into more. I think that the Equal Rights Amendment is a great example of something that should be in the Constitution. I don't mean to say that inclusive constitutionalism renders formal amendment unnecessary, um, but I do think that it would allow us to better use the Constitution that we already do have. So saying like, okay, amending the Constitution is like a somewhat longer term goal, but we can start reinterpreting things now as the far right has done, uh, reinterpreting the Constitution to take rights away, we can take those rights back. Mm, that's that's wonderful. That's such good news. Um, so your, your upcoming book is based in just this premise that we can actually take back the Constitution and have it be for all people and interpret it as such. When is it coming out? When can we expect it? What inspired you to write the book? Ah, okay, yes. So I think part of me wrote the book out of just being fed up, thinking that I was tired of the nonsense the court was doing and these intellectually incoherent and immoral justifications that they were putting forth as something that people should just accept. I thought I can perceive this as unacceptable and I have the tools to, 
but not everyone does. Um, so I can share those tools. I can provide people with the things they need to sort of recognize this nonsense when they see it and understand that they don't have to put up with it and that we can be interpreting the Constitution differently instead. So I think it was out of, in some sense, frustration, but also more deeply in hope and wanting us to build and create something better and believing that we are capable of doing so. Like all of these laws are, and the methods of interpretation, they didn't come down from on high. I want people to understand that, especially the people who are most impacted and harmed by these laws, but may not have the understanding of uh, like how this is affecting them. Uh, so this is something that has always really interested me and something I cared about. And I think that that only just became more and more intense as the court became more and more radical. So I'm writing this book now, uh, currently still in the process of writing it. Um, so Arduous, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this gives you like a little pep in your step about it because you realize that it's it's just so necessary and so needed and that we're all like chomping at the bit to read your book, really. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that so much. Um, I, I expect to be done writing it, uh, probably like late August. Uh, so, so it wouldn't be out in time for whatever fresh hell the Supreme Court lays down at the end of this term, but by next term, so like summer 2024, I should be out in print at a bookstore near you to explain what's happening and why it's bad <laughs> and what we can do instead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What we can do instead. I think, you know, I think a lot of people feel powerless in all of it. Um, you know, I think reading your piece even in The Atlantic, it's a knocker, man. Like it just it really knocks the wind out of your soul and spirit because it really feels so present in our daily lives. And you really just like hit the nail on the head with this recent decision that, you know, I think is so threatening to women and so threatening to people who, you know, might end up being victims of violence. Like, it's just really scary and the stakes are so high. But I am so thrilled that you feel hopeful too um, and that you're writing this book from a place of hope and empowerment that people can actually make up a different thing. Like, say a different thing. Yeah. And stop saying the old thing, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, I... It is my hope that inclusive constitutionalism can be something that mobilizes people and energizes people and lets them think about the Constitution. Uh, first, think about the Constitution, um, but then also to think about it in a different way, to think about our democracy in a different way. And I don't think that's at all uh, inconsistent with these sort of ideas of like structural reform that you had mentioned. I think these things go hand in hand. Oh, totally. Because we need to change... There's so much we need to change. I'm thinking that sort of by creating this different methodology and getting people uh, sort of pumped about it and rallied around it and having it uh, become a greater part of our sort of like academic circles and our and outside of that as well, where we can use it in like state court jurisprudence. Like we can build a movement like uh, like together that people can do this. Uh, and yeah, uh because we've done it before. That's precisely right. Uh, like the way things are now is not the way things have always been. And we are capable of making that change. Uh, amazing. So 
my last final question is, you know, we're featuring this conversation during Women's History Month. What kind of advice might you give people who want to show up better for women's rights, for racial justice, people who really want to like integrate this fight into their career or to their daily life? Yeah, I think what I would say to that is that I think everyone has something they can do, uh, some way that they can contribute uh, to the movements for racial justice and women's liberation. Um, I think that, you know, everyone has sort of like different skill sets or something they know or some way they can be helpful. Uh, Like for me, I think uh, like some of my skill is like legal writing or being able to write for both legal and non-legal audiences. So that's the way that I try to help. But I think that there are tons of things people can do, whether it's like volunteering or mutual aid organizations or going to their local city council meetings or running for office even. Um, I think there are tons of different ways that we can all exercise uh, the tools that we have in order to sort of like build something greater. Awesome. And okay, I lied. This is actually my final question. (laughs) Who are women leaders in history that you admire? Oh, gosh. Uh, women leaders in history that I admire. Who do I want to choose from? There's so many to pick. Okay. I'll throw out there uh, Shirley Chisholm because uh, I love her unbought and unbossed campaign. You know, definitely like putting forth a different way of serving the people. Uh, Alade Johnson and Michelle Goodwin. Um, I think they were some of the first Black women law professors I had. And I'll throw out there my mom. (laughs) Beautiful. What a way to end. Mediba, it's been such a wonderful conversation, uh, such a wonderful time to have you. So appreciative of your work. Can't wait to read your book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been delightful. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, keep showing up.